and welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, the leftist theory and history podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to. My name is Jorge Rocha, and today it's just me. Surprise, folks. But don't worry, I'm not alone. I have two wonderful, incredible guests who are also members of NYC DSA, my chapter. And in fact, it's not just my chapter, it's our chapter that we share with thousands of members of this lovely organization. First here, we have Stylianos Karolidis, and he's a member of NYC DSA and has been involved with many electoral, legislative, and other campaigns. He's from Astoria. Stylianos is also the co-host of a podcast named Left on Red, a podcast he does with Susan Kang that hopes to encourage people to join DSA. How are you doing, Stylianos? Great. Thanks for having us, Jorge. Of course. And our other guest is Lizio, who is also a member of NYC DSA and is the organizer for the Public Power Coalition. She was also a core organizer of the Tax the Rich campaign this budget season, which is a campaign of NYC DSA meant to, just as I say on the label, folks, to tax the rich. And she also lives in Astoria. How are you doing, Lizzie? I'm good. Thank you. Absolutely. And before we get into it, it's really important that we talk, what, what is it that we're talking about today? We're talking about the Build Public Renewables Act, a little, little, which we'll get into, but it's really important that to start Pride Month, that if you care about gay, trans, lesbian, bisexual, and so on, any kind of queer person out there, if you care about people that you want to make sure are protected, especially in this world, then you must support eco-socialism. Now, if... If you like what you heard in this episode, be sure to subscribe to either our fans.fm or Patreon at fans.fm slash everybody loves communism or patreon.com slash everybody loves communism. We need support from listeners just like you to ensure we provide radical left content that is independent. Also, be sure to rate us five red stars on Apple Podcasts and even leave us a review. All right. Now that we got our promotional out of the way, let's get right into it. What is the Build Public Renewables Act? From an internal presentation Lizzie here gave to NYC DSA leadership, the quote that I think you used was, BPRA, which is the acronym for this, is enables, NY, uh, enables the NYPA, I'm not sure what this is, to build, build, yeah. And build enough renewable energy to meet our climate targets to reduce carbon emissions. What does this exactly mean? That's Did amazing you that you were taking notes. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a lot of word salad, basically, to say um, in 2019, New York State passed this law, the, very ambitious to say New York is going to reduce economy wide greenhouse gas emissions 40% by 2030 and no less than 85% by 2050 from our 1990 levels. And it also requires 70% renewable electricity and 100% zero emissions grid um, by 2040. Basically, we are mandated to decarbonize our energy system, right? Because a lot of it is based on pumping fossil fuels. So the Build Public Renewables Act allows our New York Power Authority, this public power authority to build renewable energy, own it, and then use it um, to allow, provide discounted 
utility rates to low and middle, moderate income um, residents, as well as require all of this renewable energy that is being built to be built with union labor. Um, also included in this provision <laughs> was this cool um, mandate to shut down fossil fuel plants by 2030. There are a couple here in Astoria, actually. There's one in Astoria, a few blocks from where Stelianos and I live, and a bunch in South Bronx and in Long Island. And we said, ah, we don't want this to be shut down by 2035. Let's shut it down by 2030. And yeah. it successfully passed. Hell yeah. Yeah. If people didn't know, this is exactly the reason why we're talking about this. We're not just talking about a theoretical act that's out there in the New York State Legislature or a something that would be nice to have. For once in this country, now we can say that there is a step, a real step forward to not only building renewable energy, but public socialized renewable energy. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I guess for those who are who are listening, perhaps maybe you could illuminate maybe more bit more context in, in terms of all this acting in for those listening, we're gonna go into several things about this this act and the campaign that went into it. We're gonna talk about the history of the campaign and the act. We're gonna talk about uh, the how how it actually came about. So those who are interested in trying to do something similar, organizers, uh, activists, uh, people from a multitude of organizations that want to do similar things that constitute the variety of tactics and strategy that was involved in this campaign, be sure to listen. But also, we'll get into the much larger theoretical future of, uh, of what this entails in terms of differences of opinion or how this pertains to socialism. Is this just social democracy? Is this just a reform? What does this mean? But we'll get into all of this in due time. But uh, in terms of history, maybe tell you know, either of you, maybe tell, tell us about uh, the origin of the Build Public Renewables Act. Like, where did this originate? Like, what is this, and how does this fit into this idea people always talk about regarding the Green New Deal? So, the Public Renewables Act actually came uh, from an idea way back when in New York City, when the Eco Socialist Working Group was a little new and a little elementary in terms of what we were thinking about, what we were aiming to do. Uh, it was at a time when, I don't know if either Lizzie or I were actually members. I think there were a few founding members, uh, our movement elders, who would kill me if they heard me using that word. Uh, for our them. elders. Middle our elders. elders. Our elders. Um, and they created the Eco-Socialist Working Group. And at the time, it mostly focused on things like divestment campaigns. So encouraging large corporations, institutions to divest their investments from fossil fuels. Uh, I had a like waste working group or waste committee talking about composting and reducing emissions from waste, kind of a lot of like small environmentalist uh, ambitions, nothing really in terms of what are we going to do to socialize the energy system and take over and radically reduce emissions? At the time, one of our comrades, uh, Shay O'Reilly, had this idea. He had a lot of knowledge uh, about the New York energy system and just energy and environment politics in general. And he let folks know there is this 
entity in New York State, the New York Power Authority. It's enormous. It has a ridiculous amount of money. It's extremely profitable or it's not profit. It generates a ton of revenue. Normally, Cuomo, who's a governor at the time, just uses it as a slush fund because no one needs to do anything with the money. They just use the money because there's so much money laying around. We could actually use it for good. Uh, NIPA at the time, and it's crazy for me to say at the time because now our law has changed <laughs> this condition, right? But NIPA at the time was not allowed to build utility scale new renewables. There were laws in place that said NIPA could not build all of these fantastic new projects because it would be too competitive with private industry. We had to give private companies a leg up. So we had to ban NIPA from building new renewables. So Shea had this idea. What if we undid that law? What if we unleashed the largest public power authority in the United States and we had it meet the goals of decarbonizing the rest of New York, of electrifying the energy sector and thus expanding the amount of energy we had so we could electrify other sectors? That was the tiniest kernel of origin in Build Public Renewables Act. It went through a lot of different variations. There were several bills that we had introduced in the state legislature in 2019. Those bills changed in form, in format. Some of them consolidated together to form BPRA as we know it today. And even the consolidated version in 2020 changed a lot over the years, got rewritten, got lots of different provisions added to it, changed up. But that is like the original the origin story of BPRA is Shay having this idea and the eco-socialist working group had this vote and said, we're going to work on public power. That's going to be our focus. That's going to be our campaign. We're going to eschew these divestment things, this waste management stuff. We're just going to work on public power, socializing the energy sector and decarbonizing the energy sector. How does it fit into the idea of a Green New Deal? I feel like I've been talking a lot, so I'll pass it to Lizzie. Uh, to answer that, but I'm happy to answer it too. Yeah, so the Green New Deal is was kind of AOC's baby. You know, she came out and she was like, I'm going to pass the Green New Deal. And one of the core provisions was um, green, green jobs, creating a new uh, slew of jobs, care, work, care jobs, um, renewable energy jobs that would be union um, and protected, like high quality, and essentially allow a new phase of folks to be able to afford their life while doing a ton of work um, to mitigate the climate crisis. And so the BPRA incorporates labor. You know, the AFL-CIO actually wrote the just transition elements and the labor provisions of our bill. Um, one of the core things that we also was included in the budget is a $25 million annual um, fee fund that the New York Power Authority will grant to the Department of Labor to actually allow for um, training and retraining for folks who probably may lose their jobs as we transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy sector. So, that was a key element, and we we have that. We won all of our labor provisions. And I want to say something. This was actually in Coco's watered-down version. We did not have this. And then it got slipped in because we made such a big fuss about it. So this was due to our organizing. And then um, I will say one more thing about reparations for frontline communities. Obviously, there are a ton of 
um, black and brown organizers doing a lot of work on environmental racism. And we wanted to incorporate the elements of making sure that folks who've been most harmed by the climate crisis are also able to not only get unionized jobs through this process, um, through this bill, but also make sure that we are closing down all of the infrastructure that has been, you know, causing harm. Like Stillian Nelson, I live along Asthma Alley because of all these power plants. Folks in the Bronx um, have, you know, asthma rates five times the national average because of, you know, all the highways and uh, waste incineration and fossil fuel plants that are in those neighborhoods, which were purposely, purposely built, right, to in those neighborhoods for a reason. So we wanted to make sure that they are not bearing the brunt of this crisis. And so while included the provision to make sure that any over, you know, any way possible that if NIPA produces excess energy, they will discount to low um, and middle income communities in those disadvantaged communities, as well as make sure making sure that we speed up the shutdown of fossil fuel plants in the Bronx and in Astoria. Wonderful. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of thought into the multitude of different uh, frontiers and uh, elements in terms of what needs to be considered. I, particularly the last thing that you mentioned, Lizzie, I think is really important, the impact of environmental racism and uh, the way how even where people live can affect what people are exposed to in terms of environmental uh, toxins and other things of that nature. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's kind of just maybe slow down a bit. Walk me kind of through the timeline of the how this came about. You know, we kind of want to think about this. How long from the inception of this campaign to victory did this take? And I think this is really important people here because a lot of times I hear this a lot in terms of people who are near to the left or who are not as experienced in organizing or uh, even those who engage primarily through a mostly consumerist way in terms of their politics, whether they're reading or listening to podcasts, wink, wink, mm. Um, mm. or... or uh, we love when you um, listen to podcasts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, or or, uh, or on online, I think people kind of, when they, see, when they see something not occur right away, there's a concern in terms of like, oh, well, it's, there's a defeatist attitude, it's never going to happen. How long did this take? Out four years maybe even four and a half and that timeline you know that number doesn't tell the whole story because like i said we started in 2019 with the idea with some bills and there were different stages of that i don't think we can really point to the whole four years as a we had the bill as it has become law today and we took four years to pass that it really was probably even five years, the idea in 2018 turned into the set of bills in 2019. Then those set of bills consolidated in 2020. They got rewritten substantially in 2021. And we had won a clean sweep for all of our state legislative electoral races. So we created the Socialists in Office in 2021. And we ran the original Tax the Rich campaign. So those really like 
drastically shifted the ground in which we were organizing, right? And then in 2021, I'm still in 2021 here, right? We're running a Tax the Rich <laughs> campaign, and we kind of really began to put full What was the Tax the Rich campaign? That was um, New York City DSA's Tax the Rich campaign in 2021 was kind of once we had won all of those electoral victories and we created the socialist in office, we realized we had this phenomenal resource with all of these DSA cadre members who are now in you know the state legislature. And we had to intervene in a state budget because every single year in the state budget usually just went Cuomo's way. Uh, it usually was just an austerity budget. We finally had some modicum of power to intervene and push the budget left. And that first time, I think we won close to $7 billion in new taxes. It helped fund things like the Excluded Workers Fund that made sure that pandemic-era federal support that was not given to undocumented immigrants across the United States, it helped create a New York State fund specifically for them so that they would be included and they would receive benefits that they would not have gotten otherwise, uh, as well as several other things prevented certain funding cuts and kind of set the state up a little bit, especially during the economic shock of a pandemic to weather through that and still have some form of funding for expanding programs. Um, so that was tax rich 2021. If you ask me who I would say I was just a canvasser. Uh, I don't know how involved uh, Lizzie you were at the time, but I remember uh, comrades in New York city say like Tasha Van Auken and Aina Laka and, um, Oh, what's his name, Lizzie? Ofer, Ofer Igazi, and a few other people were really big parts of Tax the Rich 1.0, as we call it now. Um, so that happened in 2021. And then again, we had kind of a, a strategic rediscussion. And we can talk about that later. But one really critical part of the story of Build Public Renewables is constant strategic rediscussion, reanalysis. Are we correct? Should we change course? What are we doing and why? And so in 2022, that was, uh, 21 was like the first year we really had some effort into seeing, is this feasible to pass? 2022, we made the strategic decision to say, we're not going to be able to pass this bill without building more power in the state legislature. And so we have to run some electoral campaigns. And we ran several electoral campaigns uh, within New York City DSA. We intervened heavily as Eco-Socialist Working Group. We made climate an electoral issue that year. It was really successful for Sarahana Shrestha, who won in the Hudson Valley. She was a member of the Eco-Socialist Working Group in the area. She really came out of kind of this kind of organizing. And she ran very explicitly on this bill and defeated a, like, what, several decade incumbent who begged Carl Hasty, uh, Speaker of the New York State Assembly, begged him outside the bathroom doors, if you don't bring this bill to a vote, I will lose my seat. Uh, <laughs> he was right. Carl Hasty didn't bring the bill to a vote. And the gentleman, Kevin Cahill, did in fact lose his seat to Sarahana. Get so we, we pivoted the energy in 2022. We focused mainly on electoral. But as part of that, we had such success in, in certain elements of electoral that it really broke through in the legislative side. And we were able to make great strides and we passed in the state Senate that year. And that's the year that we got labor to drop a lot of opposition. That's the year we got the AFL-CIO to agree to write our labor language where previously they weren't engaging with us. And a lot of things changed. And after 2022, we realized we can pass this bill. 
And so this year, 2023, we were able to pass it in the state budget. The passage of the Inflation Reduction Act federally last year helped as well uh, because it included a provision called direct pay, where traditionally uh, private energy companies get tax incentives for building renewable energy, right? But public companies do not pay taxes because they are public. So they don't benefit from incentives like that. Direct pay says, great, if you're a public entity, you're not going to get a tax incentive. We're just going to give you the money. And so now public entities like NIPA could get up to 30% of their projects totally covered by the federal government, an advantage that private companies do not have. And so that was a big uh, part of our with shifting political conditions and why we were able to win this year. But that's Stiliana, hopefully the big picture timeline. Stiliana, are you saying that Joe Biden helped pass BPRA? Um, I, you know, I think it was a dark Brandon moment. Uh, dark Brandon rose so slightly. You know, I think God is keeping Joe Biden on his toes. I saw a video today where he fell on stage and the Debt Collective <laughs> quote tweeted it. And they're getting very biblical. Big shout out to the Debt Collective on Twitter. Uh, they quote tweeted it and they were like, God is punishing him for uh, not supporting student debt. Uh, and I was like, wow, yes. So, yeah, if he had not included direct pay provisions in the IRA, I think God would have done him a number uh, a little bit worse than just falling on stage. God had very clear commandments on debt. He said they're going to be canceled every seven years. And so for Joe Biden to turn back on his cancellation, smile. <laughs> Um, but uh, that's 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 great. Thank you so much for the general timeline you provided. Um, something I noticed is you had you had you you mentioned Stilianos about the uh, like that 2021 was this important year. You'd say that kind of shifted things in terms of this campaign. Uh, do you think that? COVID in terms of people's consideration of, of how do I put this? That nature is real, I guess. Like it's, a, it's something that it's something that you cannot escape. Do you think that COVID and the pandemic might have shifted some people's minds at least? Obviously we know not everybody because people still deny COVID, but uh, it might have, uh, how do I say this? Like, activated a lot of people in terms of saying that there needs something to be happened with regards to say climate change. Absolutely. I mean, so many things happened during the height of the pandemic in 2020 and 2021. Uh, I think, you know, I hate to plug the, my podcast, I'm not going to do that, but I had a conversation with Dave Kemper, who is this like labor historian and expert. And he had this interesting concept. He brought up of, uh, this book, Naomi Klein, another, uh, eco-socialist hero, uh, wrote about disaster capitalism is the title and kind of like how capitalism is prone to disasters and takes advantage of it. And he is thinking about the idea of disaster socialism where disasters happen and the reactions are sometimes positive, that out of the aftermath of a disaster, a society says, we can't have this happen again. We need to do something about it. I think in many ways during COVID, there was an incredible backlash from 
a lot of Americans who had seen their government completely and utterly fail them, completely collapse at protecting them from this deadly virus, uh, completely fail at providing a social safety net for when things did fall through. Uh, and the George Floyd protests were another enormous part of that. Not only was the government failing you, it was also actively enforcing uh, violence and murder on you if you were black. And a lot of non-black Americans stood up in solidarity and said, also, this cannot happen, right? There was this in, like enormous, almost revolt in the United States where people were seeing how impotent the government was. In fact, on purpose, the government seemed interested in harming Americans. And they said, no, this cannot be the way. Uh, that's partially probably a reason why we were able to get all of the socialists in office elected in 2020. That was a huge wave for us. It's partially also the reason why in 2021, so many things swung left in state legislatures where mm -hmm. they realized there is a disaster we haven't done anything at all to support or protect people from it. And they had to answer or cover their asses. And I think, yes, uh, in terms of the nature argument, it's a little more esoteric. I don't know if people connected it that way in their heads. But I would say when it comes to climate change and feelings of vulnerability or feelings that something can happen to you that you have no control over, people often do report feeling very powerless uh, usually a lot of people that I canvass or talk to on the street when they talk about climate change say that it's an issue, but they don't know what they can do about it or they don't understand how we can make a change. And that's a great opportunity kind of to say, yeah, there's a socialist response. So I think the appeal of BPRA or public power in general is not just we're going to have a new incentive and we're going to tweak the economy a little bit to deal with climate change, but it's, yes, this is an existential threat over which you as an individual have very little power to protect yourself from. And the answer is collective mass societal scale action. It's a socialist answer. The only possible answer to climate change is socialism, a collective action, working class people rising up and saying, we're not going to do something that's profitable. We're going to do something in the public interest. And we're only going to be able to do that together. That, I think, happened. And maybe there's that connection between nature and COVID. But hopefully it was people feeling like we need to be doing things together because otherwise bad stuff is happening to us. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so now on that note, I would say, then would you say... And maybe I'll throw this to Lizzie because I know you're you also identify as an abolitionist. That uh, you, what would you say is like how this ties into like the mass collective action that occurred during the George Floyd uprisings and protests? Like, would you say that also kind of funneled in terms of people's perspectives with regards to what Stiliano was bringing up? I will say so. I'll say something about the general atmosphere within the organizing space mm -hmm. and what not being in a pandemic has essentially it, while we were in the pandemic the mood was ripe people were active people were ready to throw down i mean Celion said that there was almost a revolt there were revolts happening you know people were burning precincts down um the collective rage was real and it was felt um and it was it was easily, it was easy to get down on the streets and be there 
and be in a collective, in collective motion with the rest of people who are, who are all, you know, feeling this determined the tragedy of being in a pandemic and also witnessing the murder of somebody um, who was unjustly killed. So that also fed into the energy of our tax to rich campaign. I just want to make a small correction. We actually have raised $10 billion from the taxes that we raised in that 2021 campaign. Um, and because there was so much energy and there was a lot of organizing happening, organic, you know, we, we did win a lot collectively. We won not only um, funds for excluded workers, we had like billions of dollars in emergency rental assistance. Um, basically, all of our public school funding was was met, like I think billions of dollars for um, high need public schools, like all of the money that was sent, spent to support small businesses um, who couldn't function. I mean, there was a ton of spending happening. And as soon as the pandemic was over, as soon as the government and capitalist forces said, okay, time's up, y'all still, we need to keep the machines of capitalism running. And the state has shifted right almost immediately, right? And mm-hmm. as the organizing level and energy has faded, so has our ability to wage true, make cl- clear class demands because capitalism is functioning. People's times are... Um, not focused on winning um, from things from the state. And so I think the the thing to note here is how the questions that come up for me a lot when we think about the pandemic and the, the riots are, did we successfully build power? Did we change the level, the playing field, so that we can gain more wins in the long run? And are we strategically better position to fight and make clear class demands over and over again. And I think those are questions that we need to eke out over time um, because the collective fervor that we felt during the pandemic, we're not going to be feeling that again, I mean, inshallah until the revolution happens, but um, until that day comes, you know, we're sort of back Coming to soon. an organizing like in terms of organizing, we're back to levels where people are strapped with capitalism, um, their duties to work and other things. And so I think the important thing is not that this do something, but it's like, what are the conditions now and what are we able to build in the long run? Absolutely. Makes perfect sense. So you said something that I found interesting. Um, you you said the wins that we can get now. What does that mean for you, for either of you? So there are certain demands that we make from the state um, to alleviate the, the horrors of capitalism. <laughs> um, and the socialist demands that we have made is let's reduce inequality, right? Um, New York being the most unequal state in the country, uh, us having the highest number of billionaires in New York city um, compared to any, any other city in the world, et cetera, et cetera. And use all of that funding to invest in structural resources to help people um, to fucking fight the climate crisis, um, to build infrastructure that allows us to be healthy and safe and to 
not invest in all of the things that are oppressing us, including cops and jails. Um, and we, you know, for a very long time, legislative campaigns have been formed around winning some level of non-reformist reforms for the sake of bettering the material conditions of everyday people's lives. And so when I talk about a win, I talk about these um, these reforms where we are able to change the material conditions of people's lives and in turn build power so that we are better able to fight another foot. I think non-reformist reforms is the right phrase, even though it sounds terrible, like non-reformist so, so, reforms. So what is it? <laughs> um that means for me, and I, I did also do a Left on Red episode about it. Uh, now I'm just getting annoying. Um, it means for me, uh, change in the law, change in the state that makes it easier or changes the political conditions to win future changes. Uh, and so a great example of that in the sense of build public renewables that is really important to me and to us, I should say, is a lot of the labor changes, Right. Part of the reason this campaign was really critical was labor in general in New York State is not interested in working with socialists, not generally interested in becoming public sector employees, and for the most part, really scared about letting go of fossil fuels. And, you know, whatever you want to believe about labor leadership, uh, we can be fair to them and say they've worked really hard to win their contracts at their existing workplaces. Those contracts are really good. They have fought and won those with blood in some cases, and they don't want to let those go. Understanding that, we also have to be cognizant that labor in the United States truly represents. It's not huge. It's like, what, 10 percent, 10 something percent at this point nationwide. It still represents tens of millions of people. And it is the largest organized group of working class people. So regardless of how we feel about them and leadership and what's going on there, and, you know, there's lots of really great people doing reform campaigns in labor unions. It's really awesome, the rank and file strategy. Uh, but we have to deal with the fact that they have an incredible amount of power. And that's where a lot of working class people are organized. In New York now, thanks to Build Public Renewables, we will be able to say several things. One, a lot of labor leaders did not believe that we were going to be able to pass the kind of just transition and labor laws that we were able to get through. And so we're kind of showing to them, we're proving them, the Democratic Socialists of America keep our word when it comes to working with you and keeping our promises for what we're going to do for labor language, right? We're not going to abandon you. We're not going to negotiate you away to pass what we want. We're going to keep our word to you and keep you as a priority. Number two, we're actually going to create public union jobs. There's a lot of concern and fear around that because these unions that we're talking about are all employed in the private sector for the most part. And so we're going to create new public union jobs and we can say, yes, socialists can be responsible for giving you jobs. No longer is it just capital that has all the power that can give you jobs, can pay your bills, can give you health care. Socialists can do all of those things too. And so that immediately gives us a lot more power and gives them a lot more reason to want to work with us. And then finally, we're going to work with them with their existing contracts and say, okay, some of you don't have great relationships with NIPA, 
Now it's DSA's responsibility to support you in those contract fights and force NIPA to do the right thing. All of these are going to build to far better relationship with labor unions. It's going to expand their reach because we're going to create tens of thousands of new jobs and they're all going to be union jobs. And we're going to create more powerful labor unions who are interested in working with socialists to decarbonize energy grid. And thus, it's going to be that much easier to do things like get rid of the investor-owned utilities. So Con Edison here in New York City, it's a private utility that provides all of our power. We are, there's no way we could take them on today. They're super powerful. They have a ton of money. It would be very expensive. And labor has a lot of power in New York State and would not today say, yes, let's get rid of Con Ed. But thanks to Build Public Renewables and thanks to the things that are made possible through this law, we can get labor on board for this in a couple of years and then get rid of the investor-owned utilities. We can get labor on board to building decarbonization campaigns, to decarbonize buildings, one of the largest sources of emissions in New York, and thus work with socialists to do that in a public way that does not profit landlords or developers or other private industry. There's so much we can do now that we've opened the floodgates for just through passing this law alone. So it truly is, you know, it's a cliche, but it's just the start. That's how this non-reformist reform works. It's setting the stage for so many other things that we can fight to do. Why was labor and why was and is labor still so opposed to this? Ooh. <laughs> it's um, some of what I'll, I said. You go. Yeah. Ahead. I mean, there are truly like demographic reasons. If you talk, think about, because there are labor unions who came out and support very early on, right? Um, not coincidentally, all of a lot of labor unions that do care work, right? Um, nice set, which is our teachers union or the coalition of teachers unions across New York state. Nice now the nurses union, 1199 SCIU, healthcare workers union. All those unions are in support of climate legislation that. Mm-hmm because they are on the front lines of witnessing the impacts of climate change, the impacts of asthma um, in black and brown communities, they know and understand that we need drastic change now. Trade unions though, especially trade unions where they are building fossil fuel infrastructure. A lot of these, I mean, let's just like actually think about this, right? A lot of these guys are, you know, blue collar workers that earn a ton of money, right? Um, working these jobs, they may own a house or, you know, they have a family on the suburbs. Um, and they may not be like ideologically aligned with any socialists. Um, I remember there was a hearing out in Long Island where there were a bunch of climate activists, um, advocating in a public hearing for, uh, just transition and, pipe fitters and steam fitters came, but they also came with like QAnon folks and anti-vaxxers and it became like a whole thing. It became an ideological war, right? Because climate denialism is very much rooted in American conservatism. So Mm -hmm. um, why were they uh, not aligned? It's because they didn't know that this was going to work. Um, They didn't know we were on their side and they had no reason to trust us. We had nothing to show them, right? Except this promise of a bill. And now, now that we passed it, they're like, okay, 
all right, we'll have a meeting. We'll put out a statement. They're, they're coming around. I want to say um, they're interested. Their interests are peaked because now we have changed their material conditions. Did get a supportive statement from IBEW uh, Local Three here, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. We ended up not releasing it because it was a little too nuanced, uh, but it was a, a statement in support, and we're very proud that we moved them to that. Uh, Lizzie corrected me in a really great way. I say labor as a shorthand sometimes for just the energy unions because those are the ones that were relevant to the build public renewables fight, but labor includes every single organized worker and the majority of them in the New York state nurses association in SEIU 1199 care workers, uh, nice teachers, the majority of them were supportive of BPRA. So to be clear, labor is enormous. And I was doing the shorthand of just the energy unions, uh, that were involved in the BPRA to add to what Lizzie was saying. They have these good contracts in private industry. They don't want to mess them up. You know, there is some element of they have to work with their employers and won't comment on that. But that, yes, they don't exactly want to fight against their employers in a public political setting at times. I'll also say that there are some challenges uh, in terms of what we're asking them to do. Renewable industry is currently not substantially unionized right now. And so they're really skeptical of it and really nervous about it. And obviously, the just transition rules that we had to put in were necessary to guarantee that these new jobs would be union jobs with good contracts. Because right now, renewable jobs suck. And uh, it's very it's been very difficult for them to get unionized. Also, they're very apprehensive in terms of working with the public. NIPA hasn't always been the best player in terms of negotiating union contracts. And there are some changes in terms of public rules around how they negotiate with labor unions, pension rules, retirement rules, all different sorts of things that are important to their material conditions and we have to work with. Uh, there are some advantages when you're a union at a private company, which is you can very easily go on strike. Uh, not very easily, but legally you can go on strike. Here in New York, there's something called the Taylor Law that legally prohibits a union from going on strike, something that we're working to change. But Taylor Law also governs other things in terms of working with labor and public uh, companies. So there are some oper- there are some pressures that you can exert as a union against a private company that you can exert against a public entity. And so there are concerns mm-hmm. around that too, that we have to continue organizing to change the conditions. But that's really critical. We did change the political conditions in New York for labor unions working with NIPA, and we're going to continue to work to change them to advance further and further changes in New York State. Hey, if you like what you've been hearing in this episode, then be sure to subscribe to either our fans.fm or Patreon at fans.fm forward slash everybody loves communism or patreon.com forward slash everybody loves communism. If you subscribe, then you'll be sure to get access to our incredible Discord server. Also, you'll get access to some amazing bonus content, whether it comes from our cultural Marxism series, where we analyze culture from a historical materialist lens, or Lost Futures, which is our amazing series that we talk about a variety of science fiction topics and to discuss how we can imagine the future. Also, be sure to give us five red stars on Apple Podcasts and even give us a review. Now, going back into the practice of this campaign, you know, we talked about some history, but let's kind of, we're, we're, we're all interested in terms of the importance of socialism is that it doesn't matter 
about if we all agree. It matters that we have to change the world to make sure that it occurs. So getting into the nitty gritty of this, which I would hope people who are listening would want to know, how many people did this take? You know, this seems like a really difficult campaign. Like, how do you convince the capitalist state? And I mean convince, fuck that. How do you make the capitalist state? Like, and make sure to do something they would not do otherwise, to, which is to build public renewables and address at least some step of the way towards addressing the climate crisis. Like, how many people did this take? How would you even begin to organize such a large effort? You know? people i don't have specifically accurate numbers i wish i did but i could say there was uh core organizers like the leaders of the campaign the people that were present mostly from start to finish or for a few years who were in charge of lots of different strategy discussions in charge of communications in charge of lobbying electoral work that's probably around a hundred people probably total came in and out of that. Uh, then okay. we're talking about how many just DSA members who were involved in some way or capacity, whether they were a canvasser, whether they were a field lead, whether they were a phone banker, a variety of different efforts, whether they were pumping out materials for different things. That's at least a thousand, potentially more, um, depending on how you want to classify all the people that canvassed for any of the one ca- any of the campaigns that we operated in 2022. And then in terms of all the people that we actually touched, like voters, non-voters on the street, people for a variety of different uh, reasons, definitely in the tens of thousands, probably. If you're including all the people we touched through all the electoral campaigns for which Build Public Renewables was an issue, probably at least 50,000. I'm maybe even underselling that, maybe even 100,000 for all of the electoral campaigns that were ran in 2022. And then, of course, that's not even getting into all of the people engaged over email, over social media, who made a quick phone call to their legislator, who sent an email, who posted on Twitter. Uh, You know, sometimes uh, Twitter is, in fact, organizing. And even those people that took action, we're not even getting into that. So definitely a lot of people. Although I do want to say... You know, it takes a lot of people to convince, well, not convince, it takes a lot of people to force the kind of change that we're talking about. But I don't want people to come away from this thinking, well, this is only possible in New York where there's a really large core of socialist organizers who are capable of doing this. I would say the most pivotal group or the most pivotal stat was that core leader stat of around 100. I have found that whenever we're operating in any campaign, the number one most important piece of capacity is how many leaders are present on this campaign. A single leader can rope in 10 to 20 other people to become canvassers, to do social media work, to turn out to a rally or an event. A single leader could make social media content that then excites and gets people to join. So the leaders, that core group of 100 or more, honestly, that were really present and doing a lot of that work, they were force multipliers. And they were the reason the thousands and tens of thousands of people got touched and organized into this. You hear that, motherfuckers? There are more of you listening to this podcast than actually did this campaign. So get to fucking work. (laughs) (laughs) And I will say this. um, I've been organizing for a really long time. Like since I was a teen and 
as I'm getting becoming a melder myself because I'm 30 now <laughs> and the left is a fucking baby. <laughs> um, with one hand, you should be organizing and doing the tasks that, you know, are needed to propel the campaign forward or for, uh, propel the work forward. And with the other hand, you should be mentoring and teaching other folks what you are doing so that you are truly passing down knowledge and you are not doing this alone. And if you do have knowledge to share, that will be passed along and the work will continue with or without you. And that is something that eco-socialists did in a really, really meaningful way. When I first came into doing public power, I was 26 years old. Oh my God. And I was interested, but I had no sense of the landscape like no real sense of what was possible. I had no knowledge of the renewable energy sector. All of this was taught to me. I was developed um, and trained, I mean, by Stilianos himself, to understand who the power players were inside the state legislature, how to lobby, how to make a case, how to produce talking points. I mean, all of these things that people take for granted because, you know, we pump them out, but that knowledge has to be shared and you know part of organizing is also like empowering other people to let them know you are capable of doing all of these things um you are capable of becoming more human through this process by connecting with other people by learning a new skill and that was something that we did all throughout this campaign so i just want to give a shout out to all every single one of you all who made this build public renewables possible because it truly, truly would not have happened without every single person. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. It's awesome to hear that, uh, that Stiliana's was a bit of a mentor too. And then here you both are. <laughs> Listeners can't see, but Stiliano's is kind of like, Oh, please get the fuck out of here. <laughs> it's funny too, because um, Stiliano's is also like one of the pettiest people I know. And I am too. So we, <laughs> <laughs> we also mentored each other and sharpened our pettiness through this process. <laughs> I am I am working on being a gracious, loving, and kind Christian person who forgives. Um, I'm struggling with the forget part of the forgive and forget, but working on we're working on it. We're not passing this on to in organizing. We're being kind and loving. But yeah, yeah, organizing out of spite can be really useful sometimes. What 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 is what is organizing but weaponized pettiness? <laughs> I'm like organizing out of love is great, but spite organizing out of spite there's something else there <laughs> y'all ain't <Sounds> ready <laughs> so, something we say on this podcast is that the first step to be a communist is being a hater first you must be like you must have like real hater in your heart and then you can start because otherwise it's like no no you have to be like fuck all of this then but anyway what was something you would say that took you by surprise by this campaign, like both like in a positive way, like, oh, I didn't expect that, that this person would be, in, would want this, or this group of people would be interested in this, or this interest, or what was something you surprised you like negatively? Like what was something that took you by surprise in the sense of, uh, oh, I wasn't, I didn't expect this to happen. 
Um, I'll go first. I, I, I guess the first thing that comes to my mind, both positive and negative, is interactions with the governor's office. Actually, there is something else that uh, took me by surprise, but I'm not allowed to say it publicly. Um, so for that juicy stuff, maybe that's in the special Patreon <laughs> only tier. <laughs> um, so I'll say the stuff that I can't say publicly. I think what took me by surprise positively was just how easy it was to get under the governor's skin. Uh, it did not take a lot to force the governor to start responding to us. I was really surprised to how insanely sensitive the governor and every legislator was to negative press that just tweeting that some random senator or assembly member or the governor was taking a climate bribe could all of a sudden get a phone call from these people where they would have ignored you for weeks or months. And now they're saying, you have to take this down. Why? How dare you tweet that about me? How incredibly powerful just a little bit of pushing on some of these people were. I was really positively surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised by the effectiveness of negative external pressure on Democrats in New York State. Uh, and I was negatively surprised, and maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by this, but, you know, just being in the phone call at the moment uh, was how nakedly capitalist our opposition in government was. Uh, I had a phone call with one of the governor's like top energy staff, and it, he just asked me, where do you see the role for private industry in this? They're really important partners to us. Uh, and I kind of I said to him, we don't think there should be private industry. Um, nowhere, nowhere, <laughs> out of yeah. here. And it like very quickly fell flat. And then I had to laugh and be like, well, you know, but he went on. He kind of got mad at me after that. And it was a funny interaction. But he, they don't view themselves as separate from corporations. Uh, mm. Our legislators who are Democrats who are in power and their staff view themselves like on the same level as corporations. They're corporate partners. There's people that they work with a lot. Basically, all of the power and ability to make change in the United States, for the most part, is held by capital. And so these legislators and the governor and their staff believe that the only way they can make anything happen is through capital and relationships with capital and partnerships with them and making them happy. And so we were basically telling them, no, reject capital. You must do something else. And that was anathema to them. They were like, wait, we need to work with private industry. I was, I shouldn't have been negatively surprised, but I was in fact shocked by how closely they identified with capital and how blatant their interests were of Let's increase corporate profits. That's what they were interested in. Are you telling me that there's a ruling class in this country, Stilianos? <laughs> yeah. I'm negatively surprised by that every day. You'd think I'd learn the lesson. Yeah. I mean, that's always a surprise, right? Is how much people in power that do not give a shit about you. They do not. Um, they truly are steeped in capitalist logic. Um, they do not believe in the potential of the state um, because they never have had to wield the power of the state um, in a real way. And on the flip side, though, 
in a really positive way. I was amazed by how much regular, ordinary people care. They cared so much about this bill. They care so much about making sure that this passed, about making sure that, you know, people were fed and safe at rallies, um, that their neighbors knew about this. Um, so while we are fighting and waging class war and always um, oppositional to the state, I mean, the beautiful thing is that you build power with the people that you do love and, you know, the people that you uh, become comrades with along the way. And they will always care and have your back. And that was those are the two surprises for me, the two twin surprises. And that always amazes me through each campaign. It's like, wow, I am really, truly doing this with just regular people who believe in this really crazy vision. And we made it happen. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this movement, what we believe is about that. No, we actually run the world. It's just <laughs> that there's a, there's a small group of people that, that just make it such that prevent us from doing so. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of this campaign, what were the tactics that were used? You know, it's a, uh, your, the Build Public Renewables Act is like a, obviously a piece of legislation. You described earlier about the way that it was refined, the different changes, the way it was in the Assembly, in the Senate, then it was unified, then it also got modified again, and then finally included in the budget. But that's just not, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not here to talk. You know, maybe, maybe we are. Maybe we're doing a, you know, uh, the socialist version of "I'm just a bill" thing from you know Schoolhouse Rock. But it's like, uh, but perhaps. There's a that that's like a very simplified idealist idea. We know that that's not how that works. We know it's not just like someone writes something and it just oh I agree with this. I'm just going to just sign up on board. No, this, we know that's not how this works because there's uh, because of class struggle, class warfare in this country. So how then do you make that actually happen? You know, I'm aware of that there was like lobbying, there was electoral campaign that was involved in this, uh, propaganda, direct action. Like, what are, tell me about all of the tactics and others that I didn't mention. Yeah, this is a great question. And I will start with strategy first, because you have your overarching strategy. And from then you develop your tactics to make sure that you move the pieces along in your strategy. And I know it's crazy, but strategy and tactics are different. So strategy is how do we get from A to B? And then the tactics are, okay, from A to B is this road that hasn't been paved and how do we fucking pave the road so that we get from A to B? So we said, we need to get this bill passed. There are several ways to do this, but along each way is a person who is in charge of making the decision, who has the power to pass this along the variety of routes that this legislation takes um, to, you know, until the bill becomes a law. And we power map at every step of the way to determine who are our targets, how are we going to pressure them, and what is going to move them, and what is going to allow us to build in enough momentum that the targets pass this out of the committee, out of the legislation, onto the floor, and finally, so that it 
lands on the governor's desk. And so we used, you know, Siliano talked about this earlier, but one of the, once we realized that our lead sponsor, Kevin Parker, would not bring this bill out of committee, we decided to primary him. But not only that, we decided to primary him and a bunch of other legislators with a slate of democratic socialist um, candidates who ran on climate. They said, this is, if you don't fight for climate, you're going to lose your job. So we ran these electoral campaigns. Um, I wouldn't recommend doing maybe just seven all at once. Um, that was a lot. But we successfully scared him enough because he only won by a plurality. And then after that, oh, the bill moved so fast. Um, <laughs> it moved so fast. The other thing With we did was we did a ton of direct action to, and I, I just want to give a huge shout out to our comms team. We had an amazing comms team where we were, we were managing the press every single step of the way. We said, how do we make this appear? I mean, it is obviously a huge transformative climate bill, but how do we also make sure that we, influence the media because the other thing that politicians care about, they don't care about you necessarily, but they care about how they are perceived by the general public. So we manipulated the media constantly. We were constantly talking to press, um, trying to make this a story. And so to do that, we also did a lot of high risk direct actions. We, um, there was a huge street action where folks were, um, held together with chicken wire and um, like steel pipes, and they had to be sought out by the NYPD. Um, we got arrested with, you know, one of the bill sponsors. He didn't want to do it, but then he <laughs> got moved the day of to get arrested. Um, and um, we were also lobbying and in com communication with a lot of our legislators all throughout this process basically gathering information, seeing who else we could move to move the leadership who would then be compelled to pass this bill. So I guess for organizers who are well-seasoned, you know, and we, we also like, there were tactics that didn't work. You know, I'm sure we did things that didn't amount to much, um, but that's the difference between strategy and tactics. And we did used everything in our arsenal to make sure that, we were passing, we, you know, we were getting, we we're paving the road from A to B. Got to manufacture that consent. Absolutely. Really yeah. There were many moments of explicit manufacturing consent where like, you know, we lied to reporters or, you know, bluffed and it worked, uh, would feed reporters information that they would then give to a, politician in an interview and I would change the way the politician would act and the information would have been like I don't say fake but like exaggerated um, and it was very it was very effective and we did it several times just for uh, manufacturing scent uh, purposes of the joke it works uh, I recommend it to everyone listening you hear that just something to keep in mind I uh, give, give, given everything we discussed, you know, a great, and that was a wonderful explanation in terms of the distinction between tactics uh, and strategy, Lizzie. It's like, 
what would you then say is like, given all these tactics that were described for this campaign, what then is the overarching strategy? Then like, what would, what is the, cause there are all these different constituent tactics that were used, but what was the overguiding strategy you would say? Is it to pass BPRA or is it something else? Yeah, it was an inside outside strategy. It was to build power in the state, um, manufacture consent in the media, um, to pass this bill, set the stage so that we would actually have outside, have built outside power as well, um, to build with labor, um, and really set the stage for Green New Deal. I mean, that was this, the work is not over. Like, let's, let's be, let's be, for, let's be fucking for real. <laughs> we have so much to do. But, uh, like, if we're going to look at the long run, we're not going to win. I mean, just the BPRA win is amazing, but there is so much more of a block that we need to build and so much more of a mass movement that we need to have in order for us to do anything to stop fascism and build socialism in this country. Like, so this was part of our eco-socialist vision and BPRA is great because now we have this opportunity to build with labor. Now we have even more of an opportunity to build with DSA chapters all across the state. Um, but the strategy, I mean, strategy comes out of our goals and our goal is always to build power inside and outside. Say it's really important to emphasize that, you know, our overarching goal was like, we need to pass this bill. But in terms of strategy, we had strategy retreats every year. Uh, sometimes multiple mm. times a year. And these were open to as many people who were interested in coming as possible. So there were lots of those like core leaders I mentioned earlier, but there were lots of people that maybe were just coordinators or just field leads. And we were like, yes, come. We want you to hear about it. We want you to be involved. And we changed the strategy periodically. We said, this isn't working. Let's try something else. There was one year where we said, let's do non-BPRA campaigns as well. And that's the year that we focused really hard on supporting the NRG campaign, which was fighting against a peaker plant here in Astoria, which we won. There was a year when we worked on the Green New Deal for Public Schools campaign, and that didn't pan out, but it taught us a lot of lessons. So there were some things that we did that didn't work the way that we wanted them to. And because we were really nimble... We got to say, great, we can adjust our strategy. We can try different tactics. And if some of them fail, we're able to cut those off and move on and change. And that's that constant checking in is what caused us to do the electoral strategy in 2022. Uh, if we had not had this like very nimble and flexible strategy in 2021, we would not have shifted to that. That was the year where we said, we don't think we're going to win this bill because bills generally don't pass in election years. We don't think we're going to win this bill because of the prime sponsor. We don't have a big enough um, caucus in either the Senate or the Assembly. Let's do some primaries. And like Lizzie said, not all of the primaries worked out, but some of them worked out just enough. There were some other results that happened that year, and those led to another shift in strategy. And an IRA passed, and then all of these different things happened we kept having these strategic retreats, discussions, reassessments, reevaluations. They were really democratic. Tons of people were involved and were able to voice their opinion. And there was lots of good debate. 
There were decisions made that I didn't agree with and I turned out to be wrong and it turned out to be right. There were decisions made that I didn't agree with and I turned out to be right. And that's fine. We're able to move on from that, right? It, it was such a collective experience of strategizing, reassessing, not being committed to any one strategy or tactic or goal and nimbly making our way across the finish line. This point, I think you mentioned, is a really important wanted to like underline for listeners. It seems that having regular periods, uh, in this case, call them retreats, where you're, re-ex- you're re-examining and checking in on the status of the strategy. The, the end goal here being like, okay, we're building power to try to you know, transition from climate broadly, but the specific one is with respect to New York State and this, and, this, and this bill. So it seemed like continually over the course of years having those periods where the core group of people who are organizing were also with people who are newer coming in to just think critically, are, is this working? Are we, or is this a waste of time? Is this, or uh, do we just need to put more effort? Like, it's, am I getting that right? It's like, that's basically, would you say that was a very important element that pushed us along? It was a critically, oh, Lizzie's talking, but you're on mute. I was going to say, and that's with dialectics, baby. You know, you gotta, you gotta go through the process and then assess, right? You have to be like, is this working? Um, and be scientific about it. Like, have we changed the conditions? Are we moving this campaign along? Have we built power? Did we, you know, are we closer to from A to B? And if we're not, then we have to reassess and maybe make different difficult decisions about transitioning away from the strategy or the tactics that we were using before a shifting strategy. And that was what the 2022 strategy retreat was about. We were like, all right, this isn't working. Um, the canvassing, the town halls. I mean, the bill is getting a lot more energy, but we're not moving it actually from point A to B. So let's primary this, this guy. And so that democratic decision-making democratic um, process of listening to each other, understanding other people's experiences and getting everybody in a room and doing that periodically is really good. I think it's just good organizational practice. Um, I think it's really essential for campaigns who are committed to years long fights. <laughs> Y'all got to check in with each other and think long term, be able to see past, present, future and, and make those decisions together at the end of the day. Absolutely. So then how was this campaign like actually run? Like what was the organizational structure? You kind of mentioned earlier a little bit was there's like a core group of organizers and then uh, peop- uh, seems like a magnitude higher of like volunteers that were mobilized, uh, whether in DSA or those who were DSA curious. Uh, but what about like the, like talk about the operations involved, the actual logistics, people don't talk, people, people don't like talking about what seems to be very boring, but turns out it's actually the most important part of all of this. Uh, it's like, how do you actually make this work? How do we do this? And also fundraising, you know, socialism is not a movement that has a lot of money for, you know, makes perfect sense. Why would people with money give us the money to get rid of them. But point is, t- t- talk more about like the actual operation structure, things of that nature regarding the campaign. 
Conservatives keep saying that billionaires are funding socialism. Well, I would like to meet these billionaires. Um, uh, actually, so recently, me and another comrade, Daniel Goulden, we went down. We didn't go down. We went on Zoom to talk to the folks at WePower DC who are running their own public power campaign and operations right Ooh. now. Uh, to talk to them a little bit about structure because that was a really big part. And Daniel, they were really instrumental in strategy and structure for the campaign. Um, so you're probably suspecting a pattern here, but yes, the structure was flexible and it changed year to year. The kind of most critical overarching structure really came through in a strategy retreat, I want to say in 2020 or 21, uh, one of those years. We had a strategy retreat. We talked about what's necessary to pass this bill and all the necessary components. And we came up with a structure that was very loosely divided into committees. And so there was a strategy committee that was responsible for putting together a weekly agenda for the whole group. Uh, and the strategy committee also responsible for kind of being like responsible for certain decisions that had to be made on an ad hoc basis and kind of guiding discussions and questions and the group's orientation. And then underneath that, there was a field committee, which was responsible for all of the canvassing and volunteer work, rallies, turnout, everything that you could imagine under that. That was obviously the biggest committee, and that was where most people had a lot of interaction with. There was a comms committee, originally called the media committee. And as you can infer, that was the committee responsible for all the people doing graphic design, social media content, press work, everything involved in like public facing, external messaging, and even non-public facing, preparing talking points for people to go on shows and making all of that happen. There was a lobbying committee uh, and that changed and looked in different ways that actually came a little bit later. That's what Lizzie and I were really big on for a long period of time. And that was responsible for the insider part of the strategy, making kind of decisions where necessary in terms of negotiations, handling meetings, responsible at times for lobby meetings with members, but for the most part that happened in field. And lobbying was responsible for like negotiating with high level staff, with politicians, holding a lot of political relationships with labor unions, everything under the sun. Uh, there was an onboarding committee, and I really would be like remiss not to give this committee its full due. Onboarding was probably the most important committee simply for the mm -hmm. fact that they were responsible for reaching out to people and bringing them in. I was onboarded way back in 2019. I would not have been in, a member of the Eco-Socialist Working Group if Thomas Niles did not reach out to me and said, hey, do you want to get coffee? And he did a one-on-one -on -one with me and slotted me in. I'm sure Lizzie was onboarded at some point. Every single major leader, uh, most of them were onboarded by someone else brought in. And all of those leaders and that volunteer capacity, member capacity, all of these people had to be onboarded because a lot of people probably get the experience of you join DSA, maybe you join a campaign and you kind of like sit around and say, so what now? Um, and onboarders were really effective at talking to them one-on-one, -on -one, making them feel special, bringing them in and directing them to where they were needed. Uh, and there were uh, there was a research and data committee that was really prominent early on when there was a lot of research work needed for like, how does the energy system work? What information do we need to know? And also doing data research on our opponents, kind of like oppo basically. 
Uh, I think that's it. There might have been one or two committees that I'm missing, and I'm so sorry for that. Uh, but those are all the committees that were really operating in some form or another over the few years. And they had co-chairs. We kind of had an unlimited number of co-chairs for each committee because the vision really was there should be as many leaders as possible. And that was really a huge boon. The more people we brought in to high-level, quote-unquote, sensitive discussions, the more they could understand, the more they could engage, the more work they can do. And that drastically expanded our capacity. So that's one big lesson I want to share with everyone. Bring people in. Don't be afraid to make every single slightly interested person a leader if and when they're ready because they can only engage further. They can only level up, so to speak, if they are allowed to, if they are part of those sensitive conversations, if they're grown and developed and supported. So yeah, that was the structure. I would say with regards to fundraising, we didn't raise a crazy amount of money for this campaign up until this year, really. And even still, we didn't do that this year, mostly because for the first few years we operated, we didn't have a lot of expenses. And the New York City DSA had money for priority campaigns. So they gave us a few thousand dollars annually because we were voted on as a chapter-wide priority. We were able to escape by with that. In 2022, all the fundraising happened through the candidates and it was all for their campaigns. So that was all our focus. And then in 2023, we were part of the Tax the Rich campaign uh, in that sense. And a lot of the work that we were doing um, happened in lobbying and through Tax the Rich field. So there wasn't a crazy amount of fundraising there. We also had an external coalition. I can't believe I forgot to mention the Public Power New York Coalition. And that was an important part in terms of how do we phrase, frame ourselves publicly as not just DSA, how do we represent more than just New York City DSA? The Public Power New York Coalition included DSA chapters and included a lot of left-leaning climate organizations and uh, you know fellow travelers. And one really critical part of that is we didn't enter into that coalition and we didn't kind of be just a side member, but we were very much the guiding organization in that coalition. We made sure that we wouldn't let nonprofits that could be good, but have some of their own motivations, have funders they have to answer to. We didn't allow them to just lead the strategy, but we helped lead. And a lot of them were very eager to follow. And in fact, we're happy to have someone else calling shots and making decisions and all they had to do was support. I have a confession to make, and this is to kind of uh, underline the point regarding onboarding. So, and it, I completely agree with like the point of onboarding. It's one hundred been a huge aspect in terms of like something I've learned a lot through practice in terms of uh, uh, in my organizing, whether it was like when I was on the organizing committee for North Brooklyn or uh, now that I'm on the steering committee for the international committee. That's been such an incredible element that's expanded a lot of the capacity international committee, which those listening, you should try checking it out. Um, but the confession is that I actually went to the only time went to an eco-social working group meeting in February of 2019, and I had no idea what was going on. And if someone had onboarded me one-to-one, -one, maybe I would have been more involved. But but, I, but the, the point I'm getting at is like, I think it is, everything still on set is absolutely correct. It's people have, people usually check something out once, and if they're not sure what's going on, or 
like it really takes an unusual person, like an unusual, like in a, like a like a weird way, for you to keep wanting to go something, even if you w- weren't about it right away. It's like if someone just goes and then, if someone reaches out to you, you're much more interested. And this is just general, it's general life advice, but also just organizing in terms of like if you want someone to be uh, interested in what you're doing, you have to reach out. You cannot expect for people to just come to you. That's not how this works. Mm. I'm so sorry no one onboarded you, but I'm glad that we can meet again. <laughs> <laughs> it's not personal. It's just, uh, I, I just thought it was uh, interesting that you said that. Like the, the timelines you brought up, I was like, oh, okay, interesting. I was like, I'm sure it wasn't, I mean, 2019 was like really early, so capacity wasn't there. Yeah, we were, I was not a member in February 2019. Uh, not that I was in the onboarding committee, but I know I, I can't even speak to what was going on there, but Definitely those committees really flourished late 2020, early 2021. Mm-hmm. That's when we kind of brought that together. Uh, but I appreciate you saying that. That's like, that's a perfect illustration of the point. No matter how good the campaign is, how good the working group is, how good the people are, if you are not being approached and directly pulled in, it's really awkward and difficult. It takes a very unusual person to engage further. Um, and so onboarding is a critically necessary part of any campaign. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, and I think there's a lot of lessons here in terms of like, just to think about, I'll give you another, both of you another chance to kind of uh, maybe deconstruct the campaign in terms of lessons other organizers can uh, can get from. But from what I can gather just from the conversation, it's like having a core group of organizers that are committed to, to pushing this along. They're constantly checking in with one, one another, but also having a group of people that you're continually mobilizing and mm-hmm. eventually hoping to develop them to become a core organizer um, structured in a way. But the campaign and in any kind of strategy you're doing, you if it, particularly in this one, if it's an inside-outside, uh, you know, I like to use dual power, but, you know, put the Leninist terms to the side, uh, if you're, you got to make sure you have people that each of the tactics they're using is focused on. Uh, if a committee formed around them, that there are people who are specifically bottom lining that work and pushing things along, mm-hmm. uh, onboarding people onto the general formation and campaign that is going on. And yeah. And also don't forget to manufacture that consent. Um, is there anything else that you think would be important for people to know, not just for, uh, another one of these campaigns, but also to just campaigns in general. Because this just seems like really useful lessons for organizing, just period. Yeah, that was an amazing breakdown. I would also add, we should anticipate our enemies and always know, obviously shame them. We had these great memo boards where we... <laughs> had like the transactions of fossil fuel donations that a bunch of politicians were receiving and so know your enemy but also anticipate what they will do which is they will lean into their capitalist donors they will listen to experts who are aligned with the capitalist state so how was it we lost you for some reason Can, we lost you for okay is this better yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay, great. I think we just need to do a little turn off, turn on situation. 
Okay, so we were in to do, 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 deconstruct this campaign to allow. Yeah, so what would you say are lessons that needs to be? Uh, you know, we kind of went over the the different ways we could like the lessons that could come out of the campaign. But what would you say are some lessons? And also, we'll probably splice this together in some way to keep this keep it going. So continue with the answer, Lizzie. Oh, I wanted to say know your enemy i'll just start from the start okay okay producer starting from the start <laughs> i want to add that you should know your enemy and anticipate their moves which is to say you know because we knew that all a lot of these pol politicians did not give a shit but also were going to fight us and listen to private renewable energy companies and fossil fuel industry their donors so we shamed them by, you know, outlining all of the thousands of dollars they were receiving from fossil fuel industries. We had these great Venmo boards where you could see the transactions from like Con Ed and a fossil fuel company. Um, Those were cool. Yeah. And also we anticipated their moves. Um, our lead sponsor also would put out a lot of these watered down bills throughout the session to appease somebody. So... Um, we had to get very good at anticipating what he was going to do, understanding that they were going to be listening to other parties and being like three steps ahead of them and providing answers to a lot of their questions. So, know your enemy. Hell yeah. Also a great podcast, Friends of the Show. Um, all right. So we, we kind of went over a bunch of the practice in terms of how did you even like how does it was even run and for those who want to know later how do you even run this thing and to run your own campaign similar to this in the future so now we'll kind of get into you know of course people who listen to this show their favorite part also my favorite part kind of goes a little bit in terms of some theory and also think about the big picture you know all right bird's eye view you know, we're thinking about the future here right because you know, this is ultimately given, particularly with like climate change, it feels like there's like a fight for the future of humanity. And so now you mentioned the BPRA Act, you mentioned like getting concessions from the state or trying to these non-reformist reforms. Now, a lot of people who listen to the show or those who you know identify as communist or Marxist or what have you, perhaps they're more skeptical of such a such, such a such a such a claim that they're they're moving towards socialism how would you say then this, this all of this fits into socialism class struggle what would you say to people that would say oh that's all great that's awesome wonderful but that's just social democracy you know it's not not socialism and fundamentally will be limiting what would you say to that i'm maybe not always the best equipped for these types of discussions. I'm like a, I'm a little infamous sometimes uh, for being like a very like anti book, anti theory person. I haven't read a lot and I generally try to avoid kind of like big theoretical questions. Cause I'm just like, Oh, I don't know. And I'm worried on the here and now, but I'm going to try. I think part of what we were talking about earlier, when we talk about non-reformist reforms, I think is a little bit of the answer for me, at least, which is that we don't think 
passing this law is going to like magically change things, right? But we do think that passing this law changes the political conditions on the ground for future changes. So if we can create more work, you know, unionized workers, we can add tens of thousands of jobs and those all be union jobs. We are expanding the organized working class, right? So that's number one. We are changing the political conditions here in New York. More and more working class people will be organized. And that is one of the key ingredients for socialism. If you are not going to be worried about the state law and state power, and you're just worried about uh, a revolution, or you're just worried about dual power, you want an organized working class, this is going to expand that in some capacity. It's also going to expand the state, you know, public energy system here in New York. Right now, it's nearly entirely private, except for the limited amount that NYPA owns. We're changing the economy in New York State to give a bias towards the public. And so we're actually saying the public, the government, there will be a democratically owned, you know, American democratically, uh, what do we call it? Bourgeois democracy, uh, a bourgeois democratically owned uh, energy system here in New York State. And it kind of creates like a ripe for comparisons between public versus private industry. And we're hopefully, if this law is successful and we are able to continue to pressure the state to do the things that we need it to do, then we end up creating, you know, we end up killing the private market in New York. A lot of private industry is terrified that that's what's going to happen because of how competitive and effective NIPA will be. So I think if the results are we're getting more organized working class people, we're expanding the power of unions and the willingness of these organized working class people to have public sector jobs and not continue to collaborate with private market. And we slowly but surely begin crushing the private market here in New York State. Those all sound to me like ingredients for a socialist future. You can even argue, you can argue that it is a social democratic policy, um, but I think it is laying the groundwork for a socialist future or a democratic socialist future. Great. So why, why would you then think is like, why do you think people get this impression then? Like, uh, Especially those within DSA, what would you like? Why? Why do you think that there's such a uh, allergy to this? To this, uh, not, not obviously not everybody, but I think it's just like there. This is definitely prominent among some members of the left um, and in the organization as well. Like, why would you think people get that impression? I think so. This, this kind of question is um, interesting to me, but I guess I'm not like really interested in why they don't think this is social, like this is not a good policy because, like, let me just give an example. When the French delegation from La France Insoumise came to New York, we were like, oh, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to get New York State to build renewable energy because we don't have a uh, public power authority actually most of our utilities are run by private industry and they were like what <laughs> they were confused because in france their utility system is largely nationalized right and so they have power and they control the public controls their utility system we are not even at a place where we can get the state 
to national like we the state does not control the utilities utility is not your electricity is not a right right not like water none of these things are municipalized we're trying to set the stage so that full municipalization can happen and that automatically concedes that the state we need to grant the state more and more power to be able to do that we need to have a group of people who also will back the state in doing that and you know manufacture consent and all of these things so the question why why do you think people say this is merely social democratic it probably is (laughs) like let's be real um but are we changing the conditions? Like, are we one step closer to municipalization? I would argue yes. And so the the question is not merely like, why is it not this and, and, and that? I, I want to know, like, okay, so then what for you is your strategy for us to achieve municipalization, for us to tackle the climate crisis, for us to truly decarbonize our energy system? And there are a variety of tactics, of course, but I think those need to be in conversation rather than, the mere critique, this is not good enough. Yes, we live within the confines of um, capitalism and none of our tactics are ever going to be good enough until the day comes, right, of like revolution. Um, And so, yeah, we're changing the material conditions through legislative means by building with labor. And that can seem reformist to some people, but like, are we thinking in terms of now or are we thinking in terms of the fights that we're going to be waging for like the next 50 100 200 years right and that's really the scale and timeline of where i want people to think when they ask those questions because like what are you doing i think something lizzie says that i really appreciate is that the uh, policy and fighting for things like this doesn't have to be counterposed to moving towards socialism, right? I think in a world where we were saying all we want to do is pass laws and that's it, or all we want to do is win elections and that's it, yes, I think that can be counterposed. That can say your ambitions are not high enough, you're not working towards the eventual goal of overthrowing capitalism and the U.S. government as it stands. That's not moving towards socialism. But it's really critical that we are not settling for we passed this bill, we succeeded, we're now socialist in New York, right? We're very clearly admitting this bill changes the ground for us to continue to organize. This bill makes it easier to get more people, more members of the working class to organize and class conscious. This bill makes it easier for us to wage fights against capital in New York. This bill makes it easier to expand the power of the state in New York. And I mean, maybe that's a question where some people feel we don't want to expand the power of the state. The state is inherently evil and we need to tear it down and build a new one or not build one at all, right? But all the idea behind this this law is that it's going to continue to, it's, it's just another step in all of those goals that we have towards winning socialism, towards getting more people involved in explicit class struggle, getting them conscious about it getting us closer to resol- you know, solutions to climate change rather than waiting around. And I think, of course, yes, there was an electoral component. I think a lot of people are really uncomfortable with electoralism. A lot of people are really uncomfortable with running as socialists under the Democratic Party. 
you know, the Democrats are evil. Uh, we don't <laughs> have any illusions about them being a capitalist party. And it is true that in order to pass a law in the United States right now, no matter how strong and effective your campaign is, there are inherent compromises to it. We made compromises. We're going to continue to have to make compromises. But like Lizzie was saying, we have the opportunity to make compromises and still take steps towards our goals. Or we have the opportunity to be really, really, really uncompromising. And I think that limits the steps we can take. I think being uncompromising in some cases, especially when we're trying to change the political conditions for organizing more people, will prevent us from organizing more people. All right. Thank you. Yeah. I was going to ask you about maybe potential limits to this kind of strategy, but I think you kind of already, both of you kind of addressed that, but to kind of steer maybe a little bit to something else, uh, it, it, then what do you then think are maybe potential limits to the, like the idea of a green new deal? Like in a sense that because if the green new deal is it depends how you kind of conceptualize it, but the mainstream kind of version of it is the social democratic reform one. And the reason I think about this a lot is, you know, you know I mean, international committee, I put the primary thing to think about pretty much every day is like everything with respect to the U S's role as an empire in the world. And in terms of anti-imperialism, how do we then have the energy transition that, the world needs while addressing this central fact, at least to many people who share my view of us imperialism. And like, basically like, what do you then think is like, how do you fuse eco-socialist politics with like anti-imperialism? Yeah, that's a great question because I mean, eco-socialism by de facto means that we need to be anti-imperialist and we need to, ensure that the state is not investing in all of the militarist and surveillance tactics to, you know, not just here in the U S but like all across the world. Um, so the limits of the green new deal is that it is in, it is assuming that if you throw the kitchen sink of legislative policies at um, a country that is not primed or like has, has gone through, um, has, has built a socialist base, a mass base that this will like allow us to, you know, change, like transition into socialism. Right. And that's just not the case. We, we, I don't think we have any illusions about what the green New deal is, which is it's a framework of thinking about how we can, um, transition away from fossil fuels um it may it doesn't address the military um although i think that is you know the military being like the top polluter um in the world it's also like something that we have just as a left like has failed to really address and so i mean i i'm an abolitionist and i am these are contradictions that I always come up against. Like how do we continue fighting for non-reformist reforms, continue to build the base uh, with the limited amount of time we have and also be very unrelenting in our vision of ensuring that 
the U.S. is not an imperialist power and continuously extracting from, you know, Bolivia or Chile for the lithium that we need to um, build renewable energy, for example, right? And so that's why municipalization is actually incredibly important because if we were to have, if private industry were to control every single aspect of our energy transition, then we are just replicating the neocolonial um, relationships that are ensuring that extraction and consumption are benefiting the global north at the expense of the global south, right? And municipalization, at the very least, is not profit-driven or is less is less driven by profit um, and more driven towards um, ensuring that these jobs are protected and whatever, right? And so it's not only our energy system that needs to be, um, you know, decarbonized, but we have to like change the f- entire structure of, of our economy, of our society mm-hmm. in order to be anti-imperialist, in order to move away from that anti uh, of our extract- extractivist model. And that means that we need a Green New Deal for transportation, right? We need to ensure that we're not just like, um, we need a good deal for care work, care workers, like all aspects of our society need to be transformed. And so I really want to emphasize our energy policies are just one type and one facet of the various transformations, the various frontiers that we need to be waging class war in for us to achieve socialism and the root of that must be the u.s as a global power um everything that we do domestically is you know is essentially impacting the um global south and our brothers and sisters all across the all across the globe and so we cannot merely just fight for domestic policies but all of that must be rooted in no we have to abolish the u.s military we have to shy away. We have to degrow from mass consumption and mass production at the expense of the earth. And that just like needs to be a core part of our organizing. And so, I mean, TLDR is, this is, there is a limit to the strategy. The Green New Deal is not perfect. It is a set of policies and a framework for us to think about transition. And to address all of this, anti-imperialism must be the the underlying principle behind everything that we fight for. Sometimes to me, it's like a chicken and egg scenario of the green new deal. You know, the green new deal in New York and the United States is not possible right now under our existing political conditions, right? Uh, A lot would need to change because it's a massive restructuring of our society and our economy, but also part of the purpose of the green new deal like we said before, isn't just to like pass this set of laws and then we're done, we're restructured, but to restructure society in a way to make further change possible. If we had a Green New Deal, we would have probably double the union density in the United States the way we currently have it, right? We would probably have quadrupled the amount of public capacity in the United States. We would probably have this like robust public sector in every single state. All of those things encourage people to become 
more and more socially class conscious. And all of those things encourage people to take further steps to then abolish the military, to then say the United States needs to withdraw from all of these interventions across the world. Even just talking about like transportation policy, the Green New Deal wants us to drastically expand public transit. So we're not feeding on incredible amounts of lithium from the global south, right, to just create billions of electric vehicles. And simultaneously, there's a lot of political work needed to get us to that point. We're pretty far from it right now. And also Mm -hmm. the results of that will again get us closer to dismantling U.S. empire, to enacting socialism in the United States, to building a organized, class-conscious, working class that's militant, that's ready to take action. So it's kind of like the limits of it are that it doesn't nearly go far enough, right? But also it's meant to set up all of these other future things. Great. These are awesome answers. Um, And I was, you know, you mentioned it briefly, Lizzie, but I wanted to know what are your thoughts on degrowth? I mean, we just need to do it. Like, are we, (laughs) we just need to do it, y'all. We are just producing and consuming at a level that is destroying the earth. Um, I mean, I mean, just picture like the mountains of, brand new clothes in the Chilean desert, right? Or um, like the Superfund sites that are poisoning your communities. And there, it's not merely about like individual consumption and um, production, but also just generally how profit-driven our, our society works. And what does it mean for us to move away from that model, for us to insist that, Actually, we can, the earth cannot function for constant extraction. And like, it's also makes us really evil as people to just merely (laughs) be profit driven. It's like actually kind of anti-human. And what does it mean for us to live well and take care of each other and take care of this planet? I mean, that's at the core, the questions that the growth is asking. And thus, if we are going to abolish capitalism and build socialism, we must absolutely be degrowth. People get into these like really hot debates on Twitter over degrowth. And it feels a little silly to me because it doesn't feel very like, you know, I'm not in the room with Joe Biden telling him to push the degrowth (laughs) button, right? Like we don't really have that kind of power. And I also feel like degrowth isn't something that we just like decide and then all of a sudden it's policy, right? I mean, maybe this is my anti-theory brain coming out again and saying, what's the point of debating this theoretical concept because it's not something we're doing tomorrow. But something I feel strongly is that degrowth isn't like a policy that we as socialists need to like intentionally pursue. It's should be the natural result of a switch from capitalist production to socialist production. But right now, capitalist production depends on overproduction. It depends on exploitation. It depends on like following price signals and the market. All of those things lead to massive levels of overproduction, of waste, of overconsumption and exploitation all across the world. If we had a socialist economy that was focused on meeting people's needs, right? 
we'd probably have a lot less overproduction. We'd have a lot less spikes in terms of one company has invested too much and is now crashing. We'd probably have a lot less global exploitation. A lot of the overproduction that happens is basically companies over here are using factories and cheap labor all across the world to kind of pump and dump and overproduce so they have products to sell at different prices. And all of that, like those things aren't getting sold, they're getting wasted, they're going to landfills. All of those things would slowly but surely waste away under socialism, under economy that's just, that pays those factory workers wages they deserve to live and that produces so that we have equal things to live, have good lives, live in relative abundance, but also some level of equality. So to me, it just feels like degrowth is probably in an ideal social society just going to happen. Uh, And I feel like a lot of the people that debate it are saying like, it's not a good slogan for regular working class people. Like, yeah, it's not. I'm not going around to people's doors saying, hey, by the way, I'm (laughs) going to take things away from you. Like, I feel like we've been saying that for years, that socialists should not be going to regular people and telling them we're going to take things away from them. Uh, Generally, we're not. We don't. We're generally saying, I want to give you housing. I want to give you security. All of those things come with a better economy that doesn't exploit, that doesn't overproduce. It feels like a silly debate to have sometimes. It feels like something that people just use because like they want to read and write books and they want to argue with each other on social media, but it doesn't really feel grounded in what's happening today and what's likely to happen tomorrow. Yeah, no, I definitely agree in the sense that, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm on a theory and history podcasts and among other things, but I, I, I do fundamentally agree that like there's limitations to, debating things i i don't really engage on that on twitter because i think it's sometimes it's a waste like a lot not sometimes a lot of times i think it's a waste of time and but because like it's really to your point Ilianos, like, and it's like it's really not like how this works like i i there's a quote by mal that i really resonates with me that basically it's like the people and the people alone are the motive force in the making of world history. Mm-hmm. So like only in the aggregate of everyone's actions, actions do kind of the things change. And obviously this informs like, you know, organizing and everything, but also should inform how we kind of view how things happen. Right. It's like, it's going to be like co- collectively humanity moves in a certain direction and it kind of decides where it, uh, it, whether, okay, we're going to have to just get rid of things. Well, that's just what people are going to just do. Like you're saying, like, I think you're totally right. It's like, if socialism happened, yeah, there's just going to happen. It's just like, it sounds tautological almost, but it's like, if you're going to have this system, you need to do these certain things, given where we are now. So just to wrap up, one last question, and we'll, you know, we'll get out of here. Uh, what then do you think is the future of such a strategy? Where do we go from here? You know, all right, one state down. What do we do now? Have the state down. <laughs> We're still there's still work to do here in New York, um, which I don't know if that's heartening people who think this is just social democracy, or if that's not heartening them and they're saying, "God, they want us to do more social democracy." Yeah, we do, I guess. Um, <laughs> but there's still much work to do here. We still have a privately controlled uh, distribution system. We still have to make sure NIPA does the thing. We passed the law, but if you're the governor, you can implement it however you want. 
there's a fight brewing right now over their president and CEO. And, you know, he's just another Republican, a Republican Democrat. doesn't matter. He's just another capitalist. Right. And so there are all of these things that we continue to have to fight for, we continue to have to fight for decarbonizing buildings, we continue to have to fight for decarbonizing transportation, making all of these things public. Um, I would say a strategy changes every year. We might pursue another legislative campaign. We might do something with labor. We might do other things. I'm right now getting you know involved with the union power uh, campaign here in New York, and it's really exciting. And I think one of the things that we didn't talk about was one thing the National Green New Deal campaign committee for DSA did during the BPRA uh, fight, it wasn't related necessarily, was work on the PRO Act uh, nationally, which was a law to make it substantially easier for workers to organize. And so there's a lot of interest in focusing more on helping people organize, clearing the way uh, for people to organize, changing a lot of the laws and the structure of the NLRB so that it's a lot easier for workers to form unions, recognizing that expanding this base of working class people who are class conscious, who are organized, is critical to all of our goals. Uh, there are so many different ways we can take it. We're still working on it now. We're also trying to help give guidance, advice, and you know, strategic uh, ideas to other folks in other states and other chapters. But yeah, there's so much to do. And I don't know if that's a great answer, uh, but it's honest. Yeah, I would just echo that. <laughs> I mean, with activity breeds more activity. We have to now not only defend this law, right? Because they will try to make it as shitty as possible is, but we have to ensure that it is properly implemented and it does what we set out to do. So that's going to take, you know, we joke about, it. we have a comrade, Aaron, you shout out to Aaron who has, um, this gorgeous baby girl, Rosie and the strategic planning process for the BPRA ex technically phases out in 2035. Am I, is that right, Stiliano? It's 2035, right? 2033, but it lasts two years, so the plan will last until 2035. Yeah. The democratic planning process um, will potentially expire in 2035 at Rosie's bat mitzvah. And so, <laughs> I mean, think about this. I mean, for the entire lifetime of a child, we have to be organizing around and ensuring that renewable energy projects are getting built and that they are benefiting um, folks who have been most impacted by the climate crisis. And we have to ensure that there is broad support um, that private utility companies aren't trying to scam the government in through the building process. There's so much to do. So come join us and get involved and learn about energy policy and have debates about um communism today and social democracy tomorrow because <laughs> these are all <laughs> debates that we are having within um with our comrades in the eco-socialist working group word so that ends this episode thank you for coming on where can listeners find you anything to want to plug aside from what you just mentioned lizzie You go first, Lizzie, because you just, he said your names. Um, I don't have anything to plug except join DSA. And what's and, your Twitter, Lizzie? Oh, my Twitter. I see. Um, I was joking that I would like to um, be sent gifts. But if, you know, if you don't have that 
within you. Um, please follow me on Bread Pipeline, which is a pipeline not made of gas, but made of a baguette bread pipeline. And yeah, join DSA, join us, um, the Eco Socialist Working Group. And if not, join an organization that you really fuck with and want to build power with. Doesn't have to be DSA. Um, right now, I just want to remind folks that we are fighting fascism and um, folks who have been resisting Cop City are, you know, being policed and punished to the highest degree. And so we have a lot of fronts that we're fighting with and we are also building. So build, fight and struggle with us. Altruistic than Lizzie's. I want you to follow me and listen to my podcast. Uh, it's called Left on Red, but there are like 20 podcasts called that. So, yeah, questionable decision on my part. Read into that however much you want. Uh, but if you Google my name, Stilianos Carlides or just Stilianos K, that's me on Twitter. And then you can find the podcast there. And then you will hear, if you listen to any one of the 30 minute episodes of the podcast, the next plug, which is join DSA. Uh, Lizzie said, join any organization you fuck with. Fine, go ahead. I think you should just join DSA. Uh, I think it's the largest socialist organization in the United States right now. And there are a lot of contradictions. It's a big tent. Sometimes the debates get a little hot on Twitter, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, I love a hot debate. I love arguing respectfully with people uh, because, you know, I think that's how we get uh, closest to the truth or closest to the best possible analysis. So please check me out. Google my name and listen to the podcast. <laughs> and it also join DSA. We would love to have you. Yeah, join DSA. I have no I have no qualms with it being partisan on here. Uh, you know, I do a collab with a, with a, a good friend of mine, Amanda. She's in PSL. We can both talk about our different orcs when we do our episodes together. But she's not on this episode. So join DSA. And all of us are DSA organizers, especially if you live in New York City. Don't, this, don't be weird about coming up to us if you see us, if you're in New York City DSA. We're ordinary people. Well, thank you so much for joining. This is awesome, everybody. Um, all right. Well, until next time, remember, do the thing. <laughs>